loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Mickey Rowe. Mickey has had a prolific and varied career as an actor, director, consultant, and public speaker. He was the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone, the lead role in the Tony Award-winning play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. He's also appeared as the title role in the Tony Award-winning play Amadeus and has taken on many other roles. He's been featured in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, Vogue, Playbill, the Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, and Forbes, as well as on NPR, CNN, and PBS. Mickey was the founding artistic director of National Disability Theater, which works in partnership with Tony Award-winning companies such as La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego and the Goodman Theater in Chicago. He lives in Seattle with his family, and today we'll be talking mostly about the experiences he captured in his memoir, Fearlessly Different, An Autistic Actor's Journey to Broadway's Biggest Stage. You can find him at MickeyRowe.com. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you so much. It is truly such an honor to be here with you today. I I'm really, really happy to have me. you. And, and I really want to thank you for your book. Uh, you know, as I was saying before we came on, I've, I've read a lot about autism. I've had autistic clients I educated myself for. I've considered myself, you know, pretty uh, informed, but I learned a lot from your book. And I also really appreciated learning it from a narrative point of view from from you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I thought I, I pulled out a little little quote that seems to capture the the basic floor of the book, I guess, the things that make you different or that you might even perceive as your weaknesses actually make you unique and valuable, might even be your biggest strengths. We all share this in common because in the end, the story of autism is the story of being human. And of course, that resonates with me because I am part of a marginalized community. I'm close to many people in other marginalized communities. Um, but we're all in some way different, aren't we? Absolutely. I, I think also so often in our society, even us, even people who are, who are in marginalized communities, you know, we have to work so hard to be accepted by the mainstream. And that is such hard work sometimes to prove to the mainstream that we are professional enough or fit in enough with what they want us to be. <laughs> and sometimes we work so hard to try to fit in that we really forget what makes us stand out. So, And, and there are some ways in which, of course, I know it's impossible to fit in. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it just can't be done um, by certain people. And then uh, that leads to, uh, you know, I, I want to make clear, this is a show about grief, but I don't think the difference is the grief. I think it's what happens as a result of the difference. 
Uh, I don't know if you'd agree, um, but there's the way parents relate to uh, a different, a child with a difference. There's a way society relates to it. There's the mean things people do to you, you know, it seems to me that's the heart of the loss. Oh, absolutely. I have zero grief because I'm autistic. I'm so proud of my autism. I'm so proud of everything that makes me who I am. And I have zero grief whatsoever about being autistic. But the ableism that I've experienced in my life because of my autism, or some of the abuse that I've experienced in my life because of my autism, those are certainly things that you grieve over. Or even people people not understanding how capable you are sometimes, people people thinking that you can't actually do professional work when you know you can, that's mm. something to grieve as well. But you're exactly right that the difference, the autism, or the thing that makes you different is not normally what is grieved as much as the, the ableism and the way the world treats you. I remember when Greta Thunberg was um, first <laughs> splashing onto the scene everywhere around on my feed anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was being interviewed and the interviewer said, um, has your something like something so typical, like um, has your uh, ha- has your autism made it hard to do this work? Um, and she said, oh, no, it's been my biggest skill. Mm-hmm. Once I know something's right, I will I will keep working at it f- without fail. I know how to ignore people. I know how to think outside of the box. And I'm like, yay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's such an important message, yes? Absolutely. So important. And so true to my experience, for sure. I'm sure true to your experience in many ways, too. Absolutely. I know that, for instance, my autism has made me a better actor in so many ways. Uh, My autism has made me more capable of telling stories like the story I got to tell in my book. You know, as an autistic person, it often feels so vulnerable every day just walking out the door to get on the bus or walking out the door to go have coffee with a friend or an acquaintance. These things feel so intensely vulnerable because my life so often has been trying so desperately for, to get a human connection, trying so hard to get a successful human connection that goes well and failing over and over and over again, mm. which makes it really scary to try those things again. But it means that when I get to be an actor on stage or when I get to write a book, it is so much easier for me to be really vulnerable in a book or as an actor on stage. That doesn't feel scary to me because it's so much less, it's so much more safe than the real life vulnerability of walking out the door and trying to do this thing in real life. That's interesting. You know, I I was thinking a lot and I've brought it up on the show before at the beginning of of, um, the pandemic, COVID, Mm -hmm. um, I, I seem to be doing a lot better than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, at first I was just noticing it, but then I realized that um, it was reminding me of when my wife was, the last four months of her life, we mm. weren't leaving the house. Yeah. And everything was going on in the house. 
And that was after, you know, a decade of, of learning how to live with a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And I realized I knew what to do. <laughs> I had yeah. practice. So do you think that's a part of it too, that you've got practice in, in navigating um, your intersection with the world or putting yourself out there that uh, I noticed several times in the book, you talked about observing how people do something like have a, uh, a chit chat mm-hmm. and saying, oh, there's a pattern there. And then you could learn that. Um, Absolutely. You- yeah. There's that, that my whole life I've been analyzing how other people act to try to fit in. But that really is just practice being an actor at this. Also, I think autistic people do so well when there are really, really clear roles, when mm-hmm. we really know what to expect. So like this conversation with you, for instance, is so easy because you're the interviewer, I'm the interviewee. You ask questions and I'm supposed to answer them and sound smart, right? (laughs) The roles are really clear and it makes it really easy for me. But if we were gonna just get together as friends or acquaintances at a coffee shop or something, or if I was walking down the street not expecting to see you and I pass and we make eye contact and I realize, oh, I know you, that Cheryl Jones, right? I, then there's no clear roles. I don't know, am I supposed to say hi? Am I not supposed to say hi? Mm -hmm. How do we interact in that situation or for how long are we supposed to interact? The roles and expectations aren't clear, which make that so much more difficult. But in theater, there are always such clear roles I'm given to play. And that's what the audience wants, expects, and is paying for. Also, as an autistic person, I've been practicing scripting my whole life. A lot of autistic people, if we're going into a social situation that is somewhat predictable, we sometimes script things for ourselves, which means we will say the same things over and over again just to make our lives easier. So an example of that is if I'm going into a coffee shop, I might say, hi, how are you doing today? Can I please have a medium coffee? And then if it seems like more conversation is needed, I can ask the barista, oh, has it been busy today? And then regardless of what the barista says, if the barista says, yes, it's been busy or no, it's been slow, I can then say, oh, do you like it better when it's busy or when it's slow? So I have my side of the conversation. It goes the same way every time, regardless of what the other person says. And then my job as an autistic person is to make you believe that this is the first time this conversation has ever happened and that it's spontaneous and I'm coming up with all these things on the spot. But really that's my job as an actor too, is to say the same script over and over again, but make it seem spontaneous. Like this is the first time this conversation has ever happened this way. You know, there are those of us in the world and and I would count myself as one of them. That is, I I am not very good at light conversation. Uh (laughs) As you might guess from this show, I like deep conversation. And uh, so when I was young, I was pretty social phobic because every social situation you're supposed to engage in light conversation. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is familiar to me from another angle. Absolutely. Uh, That, you know, if if there's this expectation that you don't fit in with, Mm -hmm. you have to figure out how to handle it. Yes, absolutely. So I know, uh, you know, we were talking about losses that that come about 
because of a lack of acceptance, because of bullying, because of, um, you know, all the things that come along with being othered. Um, and I'm aware that in your childhood, you had two very contrasting uh, experiences, one with your parents slash your mother and the other with your grandparents. I wonder how you think that influenced your own ability to, over time, um, come to accept and love yourself. The yeah. things in the way of that and the things that helped you do it. I think, gosh, you know, so I was so young. For as long as I can remember, I have always loved myself and enjoyed spending time with myself. And I think a lot of that had to do with the freedom my grandparents gave me. A lot of people might be really nervous about an autistic child um, who doesn't, who's, who people can't understand <laughs> verbally that well, uh, being independent. And they might try to really protect that autistic child. But my grandparents really, at least it felt to me, set me free on the beaches of Seattle around Puget Sound. And they let me play unsupervised with myself out, outside, exploring the beach on the water on this raft, a pirate ship raft that my grandpa had built me unsupervised, which is really a lot of trust to put in into a, a young child, any young child. Any young child. Absolutely. I've parented. That's the truth. <laughs> uh -huh. But it did so much for me, I think, in letting me learn about myself and learn who I was and what I enjoyed. And that unstructured play and that boredom, I think, is so important for young people in helping them to have, into helping them to build healthy brains. And that's a huge gift my grandparents gave me that really helped me to accept myself. And as you spoke to a little bit, I think the juxtaposition of how I felt I was treated by my mother and growing up in that house contrasted with what it felt like to be at my grandparents' house. I think that really did a lot to inform me of one, how I hope to treat other people when I'm an adult or how I hope to treat other people at any point in my life. And I think it also helps to inform me a little bit about that when someone is being treated poorly, it says so little about that person. If you, if you are being treated poorly by someone, if you are being made fun of or abused or whatever it may be, it says so it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the other person. And that I think is such a valuable thing that that, that taught me my experience at both of those homes. I feel that's an eloquent explanation for s something that people in the mental health field, which I'm in, will say, which is if a child has one person who shows them a contrasting view of themselves, they will over time most likely do better mm. than someone who's completely immersed in, you know, there's no message of you're okay. It's not yeah. you. Uh, that's it. Uh, that's a, uh, I like the way you put it. Um, you know, it kind of fits with that, with that uh, paradigm that um, I truly do believe just from working with people for decades over um, what was painful in childhood 
but they have something that grows in them over time. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm also aware that, you know, some, sometimes, um, well, I'll, I'll come at it with narrative since I appreciated your narrative so much. I have a niece. Um, she was born extremely prematurely and we were very happy she lived. Mm -hmm. And ultimately in the course of her childhood, it became clear that she was on the spectrum. Uh, this is my wife's side of the family, my current wife, um, very, very loving, accepting family. Mm -hmm. Um, and when she was a child, she got encouraged in her, um, I don't know, shall we say obsessions or, you know, the special interest, <laughs> the things that, that captured her and Absolutely. the most beautiful, you know, cat videos for a while. And, um, I wish she was still doing it. She's, she's kind of figuring out what to do next at the moment. But, um, I was thinking her whole childhood, um, she's never going to have that idea that, that she's, I don't know, disordered or, you know, she's just her. Absolutely. Just her. And my and, grandparents also did such a good job of allowing me to explore my special interests of stilt walking and clown and magic and all of that. Which of course led you in certain directions. You made, uh, you made your way through, through college busking on your stilts and mm -hmm. you know, uh, you seem like a person who's highly geared to, highly able to take a challenging situation and figure out how to respond to it and how to be perseverant, um, which not everyone has. I wish I could give that to everybody I work with because some situations require it, don't they? Yeah, I think sometimes you just don't have a choice. When you mentioned the street performing. And, you know, it's estimated that up to 85% of college graduates on the autism spectrum are unemployed. And I was certainly unemployed frequently. So, so with my stilt walking and street performing, I didn't really have a choice. I needed to make money to survive. I needed to make money to pay rent and to pay for food. And no one else would hire me. But I had my stilt walking. I had my juggling. And that was a skill I had. So... I had to put it to good use. <laughs> Let's come back and talk a little more about that because of course people don't necessarily have to. Some people do, many people do. So I want to talk a little more about that after the break. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Mickey Rowe, go to www.mickeyrowe. That's M-I-C-K-E-Y-R-O-W-E.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to BetterHelp.com. 
betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcasts. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mickey Rowe, the author of Fearlessly Different. And before the break, Mickey, we were we were kind of talking about the perseverance, and you said something like, um, you have no choice or, you know, you have to. But abs- absolutely, that isn't entirely true. There are people that get lost in the shuffle, aren't there? There are definitely people who get lost in the shuffle and people who just don't have, you know, I had so much privilege to have the skills already of stilt walking and juggling and to be able to go out there and street perform in a way that felt good to me and also made me money. That's not everyone has a skill that they can so quickly put to use to employ themselves if they're unemployed. Um, So much of so many of the reasons that I was able to succeed and that the, the story was able, my story was able to end the way that it did have to do with privilege that I have, I think, because a lot of people's stories don't end the way that mine ended. And a lot of people don't have some of the privileges that I had. But if I can say one more thing quickly about the street performing. Of course. One thing that I really did appreciate it about it is you know, as an autistic person, especially back then, a lot of people were really uncomfortable around me, frequently uncomfortable around me, or um, didn't really know how to talk to me or how to be around me. Mm. I, it was it was very clear to me that I made people uncomfortable, just my existence as an autistic person. Mm. But whenever I was street performing, when I was up on stilts juggling, everyone who saw me smiled. And that felt so incredible. So that kind of reinforced, mm-hmm. reinforced your desire to, to, to do it, to keep going because there were along the way, 
rewards as well. Absolutely. Um, but not always immediately. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so aware what it took for you to eventually play, uh, play a main part in, in a theater production. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just took disappointment after disappointment that had, I think, quite a bit to do with accessibility. And uh, I want to mention, you know, your sight impairment as well, because that's, you had an easy accommodation for that, mm-hmm. uh, which no one would would do, you know, just making the print bigger. It's such a small thing that really struck me. And how do you keep trying without bitterness when the simple thing someone could do to make it more possible, they refuse to do. Yeah. And I think, I think sometimes people get so caught up with accessibility when it comes to disability. You know, people are so intensely uncomfortable around disability often. I think people get really scared about the idea of disability. I think partly it might be because disability is in some ways the most equal opportunity minority group there is, you know? Uh, Anyone can become disabled at any point in their lives. And should should we all be lucky enough to live long enough, everyone will get to join our prestigious disability club, should they be (laughs) lucky enough. Tell me about it. I'm going to be 69 soon. I know all about (laughs) me and my friends, you know, (laughs) differently abled at this point than Mm -hmm. we were. But what I like to say about disability is that, you know, the more we can plan for accessibility, the more we're helping everyone, not just people with disabilities. Some examples I like to give are, you know, if I'm at the airport with my rolling luggage behind me and I see the stairs and I see the ramp, I'm going to take the ramp because that makes my life so much easier pulling that luggage around than the stairs, right? I don't need the ramp. I don't have a mobility disability that makes me need the ramp, but it made my, that ramp made my life easier. Um, or if I'm pushing my kids in the stroller on the sidewalk, I'm going to use those curb cuts. You know, those curb cuts make my life easier as a parent, even though they are a necessary accommodation for people with mobility disabilities, they still made my life easier. Or watching a YouTube video on the bus or in a waiting room, if I don't have my headphones with me, I can still do that because of the captioning. But, uh, so it's, it's a necessary accommodation, the captioning for deaf and hard of hearing folks, but it also helps all of us. So the more we can make our whole world accessible to folks with disabilities, we're really just helping ourselves and helping our future selves as well. But I wanna circle back to this, this um, knee-jerk negative reaction to difference. Um, mm-hmm. You said something that really stood out to me as, um, you know, I explore always why people do what they do. It's fascinating yeah. to me. That's why I'm a therapist, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> people are fascinating. But you said, um, 
America loves to speculate in hushed tones about what causes autism, gluten, medications, metals. Some parents are so fearful that they might end up with a kid with autism that they avoid effective vaccines for preventable diseases, as if the only thing worse than a child dying is a child with autism. That just hit me in the gut. Mm-hmm. Because I, the, my version of that is kind of, aren't they thinking about the the contrasting fear, you know, that their uh-huh. kid gets terribly sick. But you put that in in such a way that I saw how deep the the um, how deeply entrenched the us them is, and how much fear there is about difference. It's a perfect example of that, isn't it? Yeah, I think in our society often there can almost be this feeling that someone is better dead than disabled. I hear that all the time. People say, oh, if I, if I was autistic or if I was legally blind, I would kill myself. And there, there's just the sense that people think it, you're, someone's better dead than disabled. We, I mean, we see it too in the way that people react when someone with a developmental disability is killed by their family members. Uh, Phil aside, you know, it's there have been studies done that show at least one one person with a disability is killed by their family members every single week. Um, And so often we see the response to that Phil aside is if it does even make the news, the media is so sympathetic to the parents saying, oh, well, you don't know how hard it was, how hard it is to parent a child with a disability if you haven't done it yourself or saying that the child, that the person might have suffered so much in their life, and now that they've been murdered, they don't have to suffer anymore. And so, it, yeah, we just have this overwhelming sense in our society, in our culture, that you're better that dead than disabled, which is so far from the actual lived experience of disabled people. Disabled and, people right. love their lives so much and don't feel that way at all. And the people that that do. Um want to die it's it's generally not because they're disabled it's because they get treated badly uh, you are so right absolutely it's because of the ableism in the world it's because of how we get treated or bullied or abused that definitely would lead anyone to feeling like they needed a way out but if we could just treat each other well <laughs> If we could embrace only, the huh? things that make our differences and make the world more accessible, then I think everyone could could have such awesome lives. You know, I think uh, I think this could lead us back to um, the ways in which people get othered. Then leads to things like um, I can recall. Ha- having been close to people in the disability community, these thoughts, they shouldn't have kids, they shouldn't be parents, they shouldn't yeah. do this or that or the other. And you, and of course, many of them did in the Bay Area mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, because we're just like that out here. But <laughs> so did I, you know, I had kids even though I was in the queer community. Uh-huh. But um so did you. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the kind of 
assumptions you had to deal with about being a parent. And I loved how you highlighted your, the things you bring to parenting because of who you are that are so valuable and wonderful. But I'm sure you also have encountered um, false assumptions from other people. What has it been, been like to try to navigate that for you? Yeah, there is such an assumption in our society that people with disabilities can't be parents or wouldn't make good parents. You know, my, my wife, my current wife is a, is a doula and she so often has experienced and seen in the community, gosh, I want to say weekly or month, at least monthly in our local community, she'll experience where CPS is called in to the hospital just because someone with a disability has given birth. And these are people who are, you know, doing everything the right way. They, they have doulas in the hospital with them, you know, but someone at the hospital felt uncomfortable or someone at the hospital had that idea in their head that someone with a d disability can't be a parent and decided, ooh, I better make a call into CPS. Uh, and CPS meets these parents in the hospital hours after having given birth. And it is so astounding to me because the parent has not done anything neglectful yet. Mm. The parent has not done anything harmful. Mm -hmm. The parent has just existed as a parent with a disability. Uh, and yet we're already making judgments. Uh, I know, you know, I had a really hard situation where oftentimes people with disabilities are also told that we would be so lucky if anyone loves us or that we would be so lucky if anyone wanted to marry us and that we need to accept the first, you know, we better just accept the first person who comes our way because if you're be lucky right. enough, huh? It, yeah. <laughs> so I ended up in a really scary, dangerous relationship as my first marriage because I had believed what society had told me, that I'd be lucky just to have anyone love me. And I ended up in a situation where I had to escape with the kids, where we had to get a restraining order in place, protecting the kids and I from the mother. And, uh, and we had to escape. And the kids saw the mother in uh, supervised visitations for, gosh, over a year just saw the saw the mother you know in like one hour supervised visitations that was such a hard that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life mm -hmm. but even then while navigating that CPS had such strong ideas about autism that they warned me that I better be careful about coming to them with this issue because if if they determine the mother's not safe, they'll probably just have to take the kids away from both of us because they couldn't see how a person with autism could have the kids. Oh, that's so horrifying. Yeah. Mm. And so damaging too, when you're trying to protect children from abuse to be told by an organization that's supposed to protect children, you better be careful about calling us. Yes. Really, really damaging. And, and also, <clears throat> I know from personal experience, um, 
it's it's a real leverage when I was adopted one of my kids is is adopted and somebody mm -hmm. called CPS on us for in in her birth family for absolutely no reason yeah uh but it's scary when you're in a marginalized group mm -hmm. to be investigated that way no matter what <laughs> You know, yeah. even if it's clearly groundless, nothing bad had happened at all. You know, yeah. uh, it was it was terrifying. Uh, yeah, I know that I'm such an incredible dad. My kids know that I'm such an incredible dad. Their teachers all know what an awesome dad I am. And, uh, and if you read the book, you can see, too, why all the reasons why I think I'm such a great dad and such a so well equipped to be an amazing dad. But these preconceived notions people have even people like as we said doctors even people like see in people in cps have such deeply held preconceived notions about disability that it can really really harm disabled folks uh, uh you know i agree i've read your book your kids are lucky <laughs> and you know you you hope to get if it's going to happen you hope to get a worker who who can come fresh and see what's actually happening but i know so often that's not what occurs and it's uh, not even their fault you know it, it i know that they are all probably so overworked and underpaid and that, that there are so many cases and so few caseworkers, I'm sure. Uh, so there's so many things that we need to fix to help make this all better. But the bottom line, isn't it, Mickey, that we need to come fresh to each person and, and see who they are. Um, that helps everything. And it doesn't take any more time than coming with assumptions. I would hope so. I would definitely hope that is the case. I believe it with every fiber. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break and come back and, and talk more. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Mickey Rowe, go to www.mickeyrowe.com. Be back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Mickey Rowe author of Fearlessly Different. And, and Mickey, uh, I know, the, I know the, um, the next chapter, uh, finding someone who truly loved you, loves you um, in your second marriage. Uh, of course, a lot of people in my community go through that too, you know, mm-hmm. um, really negative relationships when we're young because we don't believe we deserve better and, you know, all that kind of self-oppression. Uh, but Many people do work through it and say, I deserve love, you know, mm. <laughs> and um, allow it in and, and find, find people. And that happened for you. But you were saying in the break, and I thought this was so uh, important to the message of this show, that until you were safe and loved and felt what that felt like, you didn't experience the full grief of what you'd been through. Can you talk some more about that? Yeah, I think my whole life, I just was not in a safe enough space to even experience grief or consider grief. It, <laughs> I just, it was always survival mode in a way that I just had to kind of buckle up and say, my life is awesome. I'm doing so much stuff and I'm doing the best that I can. And it was just, go, 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 keep, keep grinding, keep trying to survive, keep trying to get from one thing to the next. And so I, I don't know that I actually experienced any grief as a, as a young, or before I met my current wife. But then when I met my current wife, you know, that was one of the first times I actually experienced, oh, this is what love is supposed to be. This is what it feels like to actually feel like you are in a safe space to actually feel like you're in a safe home. All of a sudden then I experienced so much grief, the grief of my whole life hitting Mm -hmm. me all at once. I think partially because it was the first time that I felt safe enough 
had the, had the safety net to be able to have those feelings. And also because I think I didn't know any different growing up. I didn't know that there were alternatives to what I experienced. And all of a sudden having love and having safety and having relationships that were not abusive towards me made me realize, oh, this is what I should have had my whole life. I should have gotten to experience this my whole life. And there was that grief as well, I think. Yeah. And and probably compounded, uh, you know, I've talked with lots of people who had uh, abuse in their childhoods, but let's say they had a best friend and they went to their house and they saw that this family is different from my family, right? Mm-hmm. That there's, there's things in the world that are not like what I'm experiencing. And I guess you had that some with your grandparents, but, but still that wouldn't quite um, tell you that anything was wrong with what was happening for you. You, you know, you didn't yeah, have and I knew, your age. <laughs> and I knew growing up that, I didn't feel loved by my mother. You know, I knew I I articulated this to her frequently. Um, I knew my marriage was abusive and not safe, but it's so hard for us to imagine an alternative, (laughs) you know? So even though I knew it was problematic, I knew it was not ideal and I knew it was a bad thing. It wasn't until I truly and deeply experienced the alternative, experienced what love is supposed to feel like, experienced what a safe home environment is supposed to feel like, that I, that I truly <laughs> realized, that I truly just started to grieve mm-hmm. what had come before. I realized what you'd missed. Uh, one of my favorite uh, grief writers, I guess, Francis Weller, uh, one of his gates of grief, he calls them, is um, the grief for what should have been but wasn't. Mm. So it yeah. sounds like being loved made you realize <laughs> it could have been different, you know. Absolutely. It should, you should have been a loved child, and, and that wasn't the way it was. So I think that's very powerful. So the basic theme of this show, Mickey, is um, the 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 terrible grief of cert, of whatever it is that happens to us that's very, very challenging, the losses, but also what transforms out of it. And one of the things that came out of it for you uh, was this theater company you founded, which just, um, you know, warms my heart. Or I, I don't know what to say about it. It seems like such an amazing... Uh, to create something that gives to other people what you needed and and didn't exactly get, but you you gave it. So can you talk about founding that company and how you did it? Because uh, it's a hard thing to do. I, I have a child in theater. I know how hard it is to do that, um, but you did it. Can you yeah. talk about it? Yeah, so I was the founding artistic director of National Disability Theater. And we basically, I was feeling really frustrated that I saw so many talented, talented disabled actors and none of them were really getting to play the roles they deserved to play. For most of us, we would only get to play a role if that character also happened to have the exact same disability that we had. 
So like me getting to play Christopher in The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime because Christopher is autistic. And, you know, actually, to this day, the only roles I've gotten auditions for since Curious Incident have been for roles where one of the first words in the character description is autistic or autism. Mm. And that's double-edged, isn't it, though? Because you also talk about how um, it's thought to be great acting if a non-disabled actor can play a disabled character. So, you know, I know that, that film and theater people want to make a lot of money. They, and awards have that tendency, right? Mm -hmm. So I can imagine you're also discriminated against if you are that disability. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 95% of disabled roles are played by, this is a study done by the Ruderman Family Foundation. 95% of disabled roles are played by non-disabled actors. So you are absolutely correct. Um, but anyway, with National Disability Theater, we wanted to just do shows that had nothing to do with disability or that were reframed. So instead of having to do with disability necessarily, they had to do with ableism, just trying to reframe things or just showing autistic people doing awesome, uh, disabled people, I apologize, doing awesome shows that had nothing to do with disability necessarily. How awesome would it, why, why can't a, why can't someone with a limb difference or why can't a wheelchair user play Hamlet? Why do they always have to play Richard III? Why can't they play <laughs> Hamlet? Or why can't they play Romeo, you know, or <laughs> Juliet? So we just wanted to do awesome shows where everyone in the cast had a disability, where the entire artistic teams had disabilities. The writers were disabled, the directors were disabled, the lighting designers were disabled, the sound designers were disabled, the costume designers were disabled. Um, and these were all professionals, all union, equity, professional uh, people. And so that's what we did. And we just wanted to make really incredible theater that would make all the non-disabled people jealous and make them want to start hiring us and be, <laughs> make, make them want to be inclusive. Um, we worked really hard to have really diverse hiring practices. Uh, we worked really, really hard to make sure that we were casting intersectionally within the disability community. Uh, and that's what we did. And the way we did it is we, because we realized, you know, we don't have any resources <laughs> as a group of disabled professionals. We don't have the resources that these huge giant theater companies have, but we have a lot of lived experience to offer them. We have a lot of expertise to offer them when it comes to consulting, when it comes to accessibility, both for their audience members and employees. So we thought if we could offer them our expertises, uh, then maybe they could offer us a slot in their season where we got access to all of their, uh, what's the right word? We got access to all of their incredible assets that they had as huge, <laughs> huge companies. And they got access to our expertise, our experience and our, our lived experience and our uh, consulting. You know, it, it, it occurs to me that 
of course, the reason theater, film, the the performing arts are powerful is because they capture human experience and not the easy, usually the easy aspects of human experience, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's always some kind of difficulty in any production, even humor, even, even comedy. Um, and so it occurs to me that actually um, capturing stories of people who face challenge, that is the heart of the matter. And yet then it's, it's avoided on another level in terms of who you hire and, you know, whether you, um, I was talking to you on the break about um, the person who wrote the play about mm-hmm. the autistic person proudly saying he'd done no research. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, what is the saying that you say, uh, uh, nowhere without us or? Or nothing about us without us. If you're going to yeah. have conversations about autism, you should include autistic people in the conversations. But I think what it comes down to is that authenticity, authenticity is so powerful. Authenticity is sexy. Authenticity makes art and storytelling so much better. And as you said, the point of storytelling is to connect us with life experiences that we don't already have. to to connect us with people who we might not otherwise come in contact with, right? Yes. Uh, and so that's why inclusion in the arts and diversity in the arts is so important. Inclusion in the arts, I think, leads directly to inclusion in life. Uh, I I mentioned to you my daughter works at Sundance Films, and mm-hmm. so she and she um, watched. She brought Coda to us. Uh-huh. Uh, when it was at the festival. And so we saw it, you know, the, when it got premiered, basically. And it was so impactful. And then, of course, nobody expected it to do what it then went on to do. Yeah. Right. But the story is so uh, in line with your point, the story is so authentic mm-hmm. and real. And it's because the people acting in it are actually the people it's about, yeah. <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely, when it just makes sense, you know, uh, people with disabilities and autistic people, we don't just want to be audience members, we want to be employed and we wanna have an active hand in telling the public stories that shape public perception about our group, just like any other minority group would wanna have a hand in telling the public stories that shape public perception about their groups. And I hope that this, you know, this interview here finds its way to help with that, because of course, that's, that's my great good wish as well for all of us that are othered <laughs> in the world. Thanks so much for being with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such an honor. You can find Mickey Rowe and his book and, and other things about him at MickeyRowe.com. Next week, I'll have Michelle Cleveland um, by Serendipity. Uh, Her story also has to do with autism. Both her sons are autistic, and she credits them with helping her uh, coaching practice because she has such a deep knowledge of how to work with clients of different learning styles. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.